Hello and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. And today I am extremely excited to have a special guest with us. As you all know, I worship Sheila Rogers and I heard an interview with Wayne Arthurson for his book, The Red Chesterfield, and he immediately ran out and bought the book, read it, and then said, we have to interview him because this book is really something to chat about besides his other stuff as well. So we'd like to say welcome to our podcast to Wayne. Thanks very much. And no pressure, man. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And as our listeners know, I tend to gush when I have uh, get a chance to talk to, with an author that I really, really uh, like and respect. So uh, no pressure there either for you. So, but we're really happy to have you. I won't let you down. Uh, thank you. Yes. Oh, <laughs> we appreciate <geez>. that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we're going to start with, because this is something in reading the books, the Leo DeRoche series about a newspaper writer. I, a reporter, I wanted to ask you right off the bat, because that was your background, and I wanted to know the act of writing for a newspaper versus a novel writer, It's it seems like it's two, seriously, two different types of muscles that you have to exercise. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about how they differ, or are you, do you feel more comfortable in one area than another? There there are differences. I think the main differences is when you write a quote in a news story, it has to be real. And when you write a quote in a novel, it doesn't. In many ways, it is similar because you have to get people into the story in the first few lines, and then you have to create a story line by line to get people to read to the end. So in a way, it is very similar in crafting a news story, a magazine story, and a novel or a short story to get people to read it. There's certain technical things which I'm not really good at explaining. I'm good at writing them that are different. But for me, I like doing both. I like writing nonfiction and fiction. Nonfiction pays more, surprisingly. But it, it's something it's something enjoyable because it's the act of writing for me. And I love to write um, some things I love better than others, but I'd rather be writing an article about the architecture of a casino than working at a retail store selling pants. Either way, that sort of happiness out of my life. So I don't do a lot of nonfiction in the last year, COVID has really hit that hard, but I'm sort of moving away from the short stuff because it becomes a little too hard to pitch and to do the hustle that I used to do when I was young and I'm much older now. So I'm just more focused on the fiction and any sort of long projects someone wants to hire me to do. And did you ever have like writer's block when you were a reporter? Because I always thought that must be the scariest thing because you've got to churn it out pretty quick. But did you ever have writer's block in that setting? You can. It's on a, you cannot have writer's block. You have to get it done by deadline or you're fired or you get reprimanded. I didn't work in any of the big papers. I worked in mostly small papers and I was the only guy doing the writing. So if I didn't do stuff, there would be nothing in the paper. So <laughs> you learn pretty quickly that you have to get this done or you're going to lose your job and you're not going to be able to pay the rent and you're going to have to find another crappy job somewhere else. So there's no writer's block. I mean, there's procrastination, which is totally different. But writer's block in the 
journalism never happened for me. And it doesn't really happen for me for writing. The only time I stop writing fiction is because there's something holding me back. I haven't figured out the whole story yet. So it takes me time. Hmm, That's interesting. And as I said, I talk about Sheila Rogers probably too much, but the interview with her, you talked about in terms of like describing a character, you said, you know, uh, the character might have a big nose, and I'm just going to say he has a big nose. And the readers are smart. They're going to fill in the rest of the picture. So what I want to know is, have you ever had a reader point out a mistake or a discrepancy? <laughs> uh, all the time. That happens to so many writers. People go like, one of the weirdest things people do to writers, and all the writers I know this happens to, and it's sort of these weird backhanded comments goes, I love your work. Your story was fantastic. However, on page 47, you, you had a spelling error or you, you had something wrong with the directions of in the city. And you go like, well, just can't you just say, I love the book and move on? <laughs> so there's a lot of that. One of the funny things I get, especially with my, the Leo books and my other sort of crime fiction is people don't care about the violence. They don't care how I kill someone or if someone gets beat up or I use a cheese grater on someone's skin in the story, but they really get annoyed sometimes at the language. I mean, I've heard that, well, they swear so much. Do you have to swear so much? Well, yes. And aren't you worried about being injured or murdered? And someone saying the F word? <laughs> Apparently I swear a lot because I never noticed that there was bad language in your book. So I guess maybe I, uh, yeah, I come from the same background, perhaps. I don't know. That's interesting, though, that that's the thing they call it. You try to take these sort of things compliment, as compliments. And so and people are, they're in a sense trying to help you, especially they find there's a mistake on page 40. So they're, they're in a sense trying to help you. But maybe just stop at, I liked your book and move on. <laughs> exactly. Now, one of the things that, you know, Sean and I read, obviously, a lot of books. And the characters for me come and go. But when a character really resonates with me and it and he or she will stay with me, I have to tell you, that's how I feel about Leo. And that is how I feel about M in the Red Chesterfield. And I wanted to ask if you consider your ability to create these amazing characters as your greatest strength as a writer. Yeah, you really can have a good book about good characters. And I usually don't really start a book unless I know I have a really good character. And I don't know where they come from different places. and. I read the same way. If I read a book and the characters are boring, then this the book isn't boring for me. I mean, I don't have to like them, but I have to be invested in them. So I try to do that with my characters. I don't try to make them likable. I try to make them real as possible, even in the weirdness that is the Red Chesterfield. So maybe that is my greatest skill as a writer. I think one of the, my best skills as a writer is, is I finish books. <laughs> I start one when I was younger. I started a book and then I finished it and I went, oh, I can do one. Maybe I can do another one. So that's, that is, I think, one of my really great skills as a writer. I don't know what my other great skills are. My dialogue, I, I get mixed messages. Some people love it. Some people hate it. My sense of place, people comment on that. Yeah. But a lot of people really like Leo, even though Leo does bad things. I remember when my wife read Fall from Grace, and she doesn't read it until it comes out as a book. She never reads my stuff. No one reads my stuff 
until I sent it to an editor. So she read Fall from Grace. And my wife is a very calm and not a violent person. And I don't want to give away the ending of Fall from Grace for your listeners. But when she read the ending of what Leo does in Fall from Grace, she was like, yeah, that's what I would have done. You know, that kind of thing. And so that really resonated with me that 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 was something someone else would have done. And even though people don't like things that Leo does and he's very amoral in certain ways, they they are invested in him. And same with M. M people are invested in M for some real reason. I guess maybe because I'm invested in these characters as well. Not just the small, the big characters, the small ones too. I I, I wanna be invested in all of them. Yeah, and I think you kind of sort of said it too, which is you write the best flawed characters. They're not perfect people because I, again, I'm a reader and I, I love great characters, but a lot of times I can't always identify with characters who sort of almost never make a mistake because the rest of us living in the real world are making mistakes left and right. And that I, that's why I think Leo resonated with me so much is that he is flawed and he is somebody who just keeps making mistakes. And like I said uh, on my Instagram post about the book, you know, sometimes you just want to punch him and say, for God's sakes, Leo, do you, don't you understand? <laughs> like when he, when he took his son out for the hockey game and he yeah. almost, you know, did, did yeah. what he did, I, I really, I, I had to put the book down because I thought, I swear to God, if he does that, I'm going to be so mad. It's like he's a real person. But, you know, and then the same thing with the Red Chesterfield, those characters they are real people. And that's what that's what I do think is your greatest strength. To me, that's your greatest strength as a writer, because not everybody, as much as I love a lot of books, I still don't have the same reaction to the characters the way I do with the ones that you develop. And so anyway, uh, that's my gush for the for the moment, I guess. That's fantastic. So thank you very much. And you know, one thing I, I want to comment is about, especially with Leo, and we all do this, and this is what I want to put in is even though our lives are chaos and we're having huge emotional issues we still go to work and do the job we need to do and i think that really made leo more real even though he's being beat up or he's gambling he still goes to work and has this work life that and then he has this other life that no one knows about oh he's just such a he's a, a standout character i said i was telling shauna before i said you know, I will, I'll never forget Leo. I'll never forget M. Those are two characters that will be always sort of burned into my mind um, as a reader. So thank you for creating those two specifically. Thank you very much. That's, that's fantastic to hear. Yeah. So now one of the questions I've always wanted to ask an author is how do you select your characters' names? Because I've always wondered, like, do you have a like a list written down somewhere? Do you name them after people? Because in the Red Chesterfield, you have the brothers M, J, and K. And Shauna does want to know where L is, by the way. But how do you create the names? I'm not sure where I got M from. I just started calling M, M. And then maybe it was because for spacing, because I was focusing on keeping things short in that book. And then the brothers K and J, and I don't know what about L. J and K seem just interesting. And if you if you take all those names, M, K, J, they can be stretched out into other names. So people can go that way if they want. It just seemed to be, it fit this the book with these characters, especially the related ones, having these short names in these short chapters. Oh, 
So that's part of why I did that. And I just like the rhythm of M, J, and K. It just had a nice rhythm or J, K, M. You know, J is the younger one and K is the older one and M is in the middle. But the the things don't match. Leo comes from, Leo is my middle name, one of my middle names. And Rush is my mother's maiden name. I needed to make Leo French-Canadian indigenous. So Leo was... Where that's where that came from, and my mother was my mother was quite happy about that. She's quite excited that I oh. used that. Um, but I'll give you a little tip about where I sometimes I find random names for smaller characters. I, I listen to a lot of music, and so sometimes I'm looking for a name of a person. So I look at a band. I go, I'll take the last name of the drummer and the first name of the guitar player, and I put them together. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> Or, or I'll just use a name that I heard somewhere, or it's a piece of, you know, uh, it's a name of a company I saw in a thing, and I'll throw someone else's name in front of it. Those are for smaller characters. When I'm going, I don't know what to name this person, because the bigger characters I have names for already. But the small ones are going, what do I call this person? I have no idea. So I just use this sort of rock thing. I love that. Yeah, that's actually really cool. Where it's kind of fun. And some people pick it up. One or two people pick it up. Most people don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'll, now I'll have to start paying attention. Now they will. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay closer attention to it. And it's weird because I, I'm, a, I'm an old punk rocker. So I'll get it from punk rock. I'll get it from old ska bands. I'll get it from, it won't be like, you know, someone from ACDC and someone from Aerosmith. It'll be someone from 10 foot pole and someone from some obscure Edmonton band that no one's ever heard of. Okay. That's a challenge for a librarian. You do know we're really into research. So <laughs> that might be something I'll work on. <laughs> All right. Well, with, with regard to the Red Chesterfield, uh, I want to know, have you ever owned a Chesterfield? And what is your fascination with this particular piece of furniture? Well, when I was growing up in the 70s in, in Canada, that's what we called couches, Chesterfield. We didn't have couches. We all had Chesterfield. Oh. It was the Chesterfield. That's very sort of Canadian of the time. It was never a couch. It was a Chesterfield. Couch and sofa came later when we all got American TV and even American movie, but mostly from American TV. When we all got, for the time in my life, we just had Canadian TV. And then we got cable, which was NBC, ABC, PBS, and CBS. And we got all this American channels with these weird American shows who had couches and sofas. <laughs> and so that sort of came in. So Chesterfield, we always owned a Chesterfield growing up. Right now we have a, we have a red sectional, but it had really no connection to the red Chesterfield came. I had a vision, an image of a red piece of furniture in a ditch for years. I had no idea how to work it. And then based on how, where I grew up and how I grew up in Canada at a certain time, it's a Chesterfield. But then I had to sort of explain things because sofa, couch, and that added a really sort of nice rhythm. So if I call it the red couch, it doesn't have the same rhythm too. Red Chesterfield has a nice sort of rhythm to it, which was certainly part of what I was going when I was writing this book. I, that's why some people said it's prose poetry, which shocked the heck out of me. But I was thinking of rhythm sometimes when I was writing. Yeah, I I know I can see that because it it is, yeah, there is a real rhythm to that. There, there definitely is. And it was funny too, because when I first told Shauna about the book, 
And I said, the red Chesterfield. And I said to her, do you know what a Chesterfield is? And she said, no. And I was telling her the story that uh, my grandmother, the uh, there's a woman that lived down the street from my grandmother. And she, I was thinking of it the other day. She had to have been, this would have been like the mid sixties. And she was probably 80 years old at the time. And I remember as a kid going there and sitting on a Chesterfield and thinking that it was the most luxurious thing I had ever seen in my life. And so that's why when I saw the title of the book or heard the, I knew immediately what it was because it took me back to my childhood and sitting and it was like a velvet kind of thing. And I remember my feet didn't touch the ground. And I just, I was just there with my mother and it was just the, this kind of experience that I never forgot. It was just this weird thing. So anyway, I, so I love, <laughs> I, I love the Red Chesterfield because it is kind of a weird, quirky story that has so many layers to it. And it was named, I have to throw this in there, the best crime novella at the 2020 Arthur Ellis Awards for Excellence in Crime Writing. So was that a surprise to you that uh, that sort of novella that you've written got such an amazing recognition? That was because the Canadian crime writer, the crime writers of Canada, I don't belong to them. They aren't known historically for what's the word I'm looking for, for being open to interesting stories. They're pretty much uncomfortable with the typical mystery crime things. Here and there, they like a maybe one of the best novels will be something different. Uh, maybe one of the Margaret Atwood crime sort of novels, like Alias Grace. But that's as far as they go. So I was quite surprised seeing I, who I was competing against because they were quite traditional in a sense for my weird book to win the... Arthur's Ellis Award because it's they're not known for, especially in the awards, for this kind of openness or flexibility, I guess, you know, because it is a crime novel, but it's not a very traditional crime novel. And I have talked about how I was subverting crime <laughs> tropes just for laughs to mess with the crime fiction industry, things like that. So I was surprised that the jurors we're open to this and said, we're, we want more of this kind of stuff, which great. Thanks. I'm glad they did this. And I'm hope it's a new direction for crime writers of Canada. They, they've, they've been stuck in a certain while for a while, and it's good for them to be more open. Hopefully they'll see more, especially the younger new writers coming up in Canada. Hopefully they'll, and they're writing traditional mysteries as well, but they've been stuck in the sort of celebrating kind of the, I wouldn't say old guard, but the same sort of Louise Penny wins. And even though Louise Penny is fantastic and I love her, she's a wonderful person. It's like, can we get someone else who we don't read, read that much? Yeah, I agree because I like mysteries, but I, I don't read a lot of mystery series because they're too formulaic for me a lot of times. Uh, I love Sarah Paretsky. The V.I. Warshawski ones are always my favorite. I read uh, Val McDermott's books as well, but... Yeah, I kind of agree with you. And that's what I think. That's why I think the Red Chesterfield really jumps out and grabs you like on page one immediately, that description of the Red Chesterfield. I mean, I just everything about it is just so much fun. And, you know, because it's a novella, it's a quick read. But I read it a second time and it was funny. I was telling Shauna, I got more out of it the second time because I think in the first time my mind was a little blown. It took me a minute to sort of figure out what was going on. And then I read it again. And so she and I will do our review of the book. We'll post that in a couple of weeks. And we have a lot to say because she and I, yeah, we have a lot to say about it, which we, we both loved it. So my question too is about whether M is patterned after someone you know, because he's an interesting character. I don't think M is just sort of, I needed someone to 
find the red chest field because I talked about that image. And I'm going, who would find the red chest field? And that would be a bylaw officer. And they would do something about it. And I said, what kind of person would be a bylaw officer? It would be someone with the sort of, I wouldn't say OCD, but in a sense, very particular about certain things. And then from there, I just sort of allowed M to develop into certain things as I wrote. Usually I have a lot of characters figured out. But this one, I sort of allow M to develop a little bit more as I progressed. So M is an after isn't isn't um, pattern after anybody. I mean, certain things M dis discusses comes from various things I know as as happens in everybody's life. Things I listen to the radio or zones of regulation, things like that. But it's not. There's no person that I go. Well, that person is M, and I batter that person on on M. Well, I have to laugh because when I was reading it the first time, I. I read it, and then the one, read it, when I read it the second time, I thought it had been bugging me because I knew I kept thinking I know M, I know this person, like I I know, and I finally figured it out. It was a librarian that I worked with <laughs> who had been a librarian for like a thousand years, and she is M. And I just thought that I so I feel like even more I know M, and so that's why I love his character so much because I did know someone I do know someone who is very much like M. <laughs> so anyway, it, that was. I think M would be a good librarian. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my. A hundred percent. I cannot disagree <laughs> at all on that. It's right. I know a lot of librarians. I have a bass player in my band who's a librarian. So <gasps> oh. maybe they look and go, me, I'm M. Like, hey, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are old school librarians, too. I think newer librarians, the younger ones, aren't quite the way the older ones are. But anyway, so, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. You have a lot of librarians in your life. That's cool. As a writer, it's surprisingly the librarians in me because, you know, the librarians want to interview you or they invite you for the book club or yeah, things like that. Or you see them at crime conventions and you go, oh, you're a librarian. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's the question that I that's really been because I when I listen to the interviews, et cetera, the whole thing about the red herring. So I want to just say and I'm not going to give anything away because I want people who haven't read it yet to not be uh, surprised by anything. But I do have a question about, I think the biggest red herring in the book is that on the back of the book, it refers to biker gangs. So what do you think your biggest red herring is in the book? I mean, the whole damn book is a red herring, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody expects certain things to happen and certain things to be, and things aren't resolved the way they are in traditional mysteries. I wanted to sort of do that where, you, you know, the character go, yeah, okay, I'm not going to do this because I'm just going to move on. And so, yeah, but there's, uh, you know, sometimes I wouldn't, I don't know which one is the biggest red herring. Yeah, it could be the pajama guy's a big red herring. Oh, yeah. Yuri's a big red herring. Cassandra's a big red herring. Sometimes with Kay. I mean, they're all, there's little red herrings everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's it was sort of, part of the book and it happens partly in the Leo books where you don't get to learn about everything that happens in this person's life or everything that's mentioned about in the book. Not everything is wrapped up. And that's partly what you may have said while I talk. It reflects life because, you know, when you're living your life and you may see a red car go by and go, that's a really cool car, but you don't know who that belongs to. And you'll never see that red car again. Or, you know, things like it, you know, happen at your work or whatever. 
someone will talk about something you you hear and you go, wonder what's happening there, but then you won't hear anything more, and that's it. That'll be something you won't figure out ever. So I wanted to do these in in. I do. I try to do this in my stories where things happen and you don't get the. You don't. I'm not going to spell it out for you. That's why I you sort of said and I said that readers are smart. They know it's not going to be spelled out for you, and that's that's fine. And if they figure out what happens next and they want to do it in their own brain, what happens next, and that's great. Then I've 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 excited them and made them interested in the characters in the story that they want to know what happens next. And if I tell them what happens next and I do a sequel or 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 whatever, I lay it out in all detail, it ruins it. Yeah. See, and that's that's my point though, is I think a lot of authors, they do lay it all out for you. I've always said I like the books that are like a slice of life. Like I kind of walked in like the Doppler effect, right? I'm walking along and all of a sudden I'm hearing and seeing all of this stuff and then I keep moving on. But the story is just that slice of life in that moment. And you that's what you excel at. And I think a lot of authors do give us a beginning, middle, end, and all the things are neatly tied up. And, and I'm talking about just any kind of literature. And sometimes I I want to fill it in. I, that's those, those are my favorite books where an ending might be a little off where you go, I don't know what happened at the end. And then you have to, you decide for yourself how it ended. That's what I love about the Leo books and, and obviously the Red Chesterfield. Yeah. So speaking of Leo, because now uh, I have to talk about Leo. So, uh, and, th- and this, you basically alluded to this, but at the very beginning of Fall from Grace, which is the first Leo mystery, he refers to previously looking at a, and this is right at the very beginning, he previously looking at a dead body when he's talking to Detective Whitford. And the detective mentions that Leo was a suspect of sorts in that case. And so my question is, although you're, I kind of know how you'll answer it now, but why was there no backstory? Because never throughout that book, and in the second book, and I'm halfway through the third, is there a mention of what the heck happened that Leo was a suspect of sorts? And, you know, and, and to be honest, when I read it, I literally stopped and thought, wait, am I reading book two? Am I, like, is, I thought this was book one. Now, is it book two? So it really threw me off as a reader, but it grabbed me because once I realized I was reading the first book, I loved that piece and I kind of hoped you wouldn't explain it and you didn't. So I, I was going to go back and maybe write something about that or maybe a prequel and then it just didn't come up and then it was kind of nice that I left it there. And I didn't want to explain it further in the book when I was writing it because that wasn't the mystery of the time. And this sort of little bit showed that they've had a background together in something else. And, you know, Leo book minus negative two. <laughs> but you never get to know what happened in Leo book negative two because it wasn't written and it's not going to be written. And it just sort of created that this is maybe one reason why Whitford would do this because they have some sort of connection and he wants to make up for something that bad happened before. Yeah. Oh, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant move. I loved it. So, yeah. Now, this is my big question because this is like my $64,000 question because I have a very strong opinion about it, but I want to see what you think. Uh, in, In an interview, you mentioned that a reader had suggested that you run the risk of turning readers off Leo if he doesn't evolve. And I want to know, do you really believe that Leo as a character needs to change? There is a, that's gets into the, what you said about mystery series that get, go too long. When they go like for 20 books and the characters do the same thing. Some of them are good and evolve quite well. Some of them 
get stuck in a rut for six books and then evolve later. Yeah, I didn't want to, I I did want Leo to do the same thing over and over and over again. Even when I was working on the first two books, hoping I would continue more in a series, I was pretty much going to stop at four. I wasn't going to go Leo book 29, no matter how much they paid me, because that would get stale, not just for the, that would mostly get stale for me. And if it gets stale for me, it gets stale in my storytelling. And I didn't want to fall into that trap of Leo 29 till I'm like 80 years old. And this is all I'm done. For and I, I appreciate the authors that do this, and the, I appreciate the work some of them do. But as you said before, crime fiction this is one thing that bothers me is that this was repeat a lot of the things. And we like certain characters and we like certain things, but can we try something new? And this is one reason, uh, already you didn't mention, I love Denise Mina because she doesn't get stuck in that rut. I mean, she sometimes has a series, but then she moves and does something else. And if she has a series, she really messes it up and changes things. And that's why I like her work a lot as a crime writer. And not just as crime writing, just as a novel, period. Certain things I really like as they start out, and then I get stuck, they get in a rut. Yeah. It works the same thing for a TV series. You know, I no more. It's done. We're done season four, 48. Let's stop. I'm sure you're making piles of money. Can we try something new? <laughs> exactly. And I, I know some writers try something new and their fans get so upset. And sometimes they go back. And for me, since I don't have a lot of fans, I'm not annoying anybody if I don't do Leo 4, 5. I mean, Leo 4 was sort of written, but no one wants to publish it. So I have to move on. Well, and that's why, you know, Val, McDerm- Val McDermott, who's a Scottish writer, uh, writes the Tony Hill, Carol, uh, Tony Hill, Carol Jordan series. Yeah. And I love those because it's that very thing, which is she has her characters go through things that no other mystery writers or crime writers do in the sense that they are deeply flawed and they do some things that I just go, oh my God, like she has her, her characters go through some horrific times. And that's what keeps me coming back because the mysteries are the mysteries, but it's that character development that I want and need. And so I just want to say with regard to Leo, I love the idea that you would have kept the series like at four, because I agree. I think if it had gone on for 29, you know, I would have, trust me, I would have kept reading them, but it, it probably, what there wouldn't have been as much room for growth or change or that you, they would have needed, he would have needed to change. But that's what I loved about him was that he, he was so flawed and I don't expect that if Leo were a real person that I hate to say this, but I'm not convinced that Leo could have turned it around. So to see him go through a change would have been disappointing to me as a reader because he is so flawed that I don't think that he can come out of that. And I would have hated to see him do that. So that's how I felt about it. So, yeah. And the one thing you did mention about Val's books and and how the, the, Characters go through hard times, and a lot of books have characters go through hard times and difficult things. But I wanted to do that, and it's in the third book, um, Blood Red Summer, where Leo actually has PTSD based on the things that happened in book one and two. You never, you rarely see that in a, in a right because they just, oh, I'll just drink and or I'll do something else and go on with my day. You rarely see someone actually suffer serious PTSD or effects based on something that's happened in a previous book. I mean, they've gone in 29 books, and sure, maybe they've 
they feel sad or they've gotten drunk or they beat someone up for some reason, but you never really see someone suffering like life threatening things where, you know, he's actually considering it's almost done for me. I'm going to, it's, I'm going to end it because I can't handle this post-traumatic stress. And I have to laugh. That is the page I just finished. Um, when I was reading today, I just finished the part where he's in the bathtub and it shocked me. And I thought, okay, it's Leo. <laughs> it shouldn't have shocked me, but it did. And so, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, you nailed that. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's right. They don't really go through that emotional PTSD that we would, I mean, they can act it out, like you say, in drinking or whatever, gambling, whatever, but it's us in like seeing yeah. the emotional internal part of the PTSD. So brilliant job on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's, you know, I, I sort of, I didn't do a lot of research, but I did some research on PTSD based on, because my father was in the armed forces and a lot of the guys I grew up with joined the armed forces and they suffered from PTSD. And I said, well, this is what it really is. It's sort of like this, not like what you see typical crime novels do. Some do quite well. Some some just go, another, another murder, let's move yeah. on. Wow, that's really interesting. Okay, as the city editor, Mandy, asks Leo, what's the best story you've ever written? That's act from the book. That's an actual real yeah. thing for me. It was? Oh, my gosh. I have the perfect memory of this event. I, I wrote the story about a car accident, and a woman was killed, and the guy, her husband, came in a week later, and he thanked my editor, and he thanked me for writing that story. So if someone asked him, how did your wife die? Because it was a weird accident. She was swerving away from someone, and the car crashed into her. And instead of him explaining it, he just showed him the paper. Wow. So actually, that was certain things. I That was my, one of my best stories that I go back. Yeah, this story was one of the best stories I ever wrote because of that, because someone used a basic story about a car accident to help deal with their grief in a sense. Yeah, I still remember the person coming in and I think I had to go to the back room because it was in a, in a print shop and just sort of go, holy Jesus, that was, and had a a bit of a cry because that was yeah. like, holy cow. I don't think I've had a story that I've impacted that. I think some of them have, but I don't think I've had one that's impacted someone and they've come and told me that. Yeah. Like that. I mean, for him to be able to, I mean, for him to reach out to you in that way to say, this is how it impacted me and this is how it's benefited me through that trauma. I mean, he could have just, he could, it could have been true and you would have never known it, but for him to go out of his way to come and talk to you, that is. For him to come there with a lot of, to say this, he let me and say, thank you. This wow. is why. And then it wasn't a long conversation. We we're just standing there. Wow. My editor and I, even the receptionist, we were like, wow <laughs> so and yeah it was parts of leo that's why people sometimes think leo is me because i've used parts of my life and background to create leo's life but you know he's not me yeah in the in the big ways right <laughs> <Thank God>. yeah <laughs> in the big ways and the big things he's done yeah that's good to know <laughs> what has to happen to get that fourth Leo novel published, because it is, it should have a spring title. So, what would have to happen to get that thing published? I needed someone to offer me a publishing deal. I mean, I, I, one of my things I do as a writer, I don't know how I got, well, I know how I got into it. It's, just, it's something I do. I, I sort of act as a literary agent for certain writers I know. 
It's a thing I've been doing for the last two years. No one I know is interested in a fourth Leo book, despite the fact people really love Leo and they've done quite well. It's just like, no, we're invested. We don't see how we can sell enough copies to do it. And people say you should publish it yourself. And I just don't really have the time or the inclination to do that. It's a lot of work. And and I hate to say it, I think I've moved on from Leo. If someone comes in and say, well, we'll give you this much, we'll do it. And, you know, you can spend four months writing it and we'll give you this much money. I would consider it. But then I don't want to do it because people give me money because it may not work out as good as it does. And the problem with Leo is because he works for a newspaper and the newspaper industry is totally changed since the books and leo would have been laid off by now leo would have been packaged out yeah. laid off and i don't know where he would be and i don't think he could cover things the way he could because it's so weird the newspaper industry and now we got writers are trying to figure out how do i get covid into this you know to make my stories real and on the times and going god yeah. <laughs> throwing leo in the covid would be something else <laughs> <laughs> well, is the did, did you did you actually complete the fourth book, or did you not? Has it been written, or it's not been written? The fourth book. It's in a state. It's in a draft. Yeah, and it's a draft I'm not happy with. Oh, okay. And I don't want to put it out because it's because it, if I put out a Leo book, that's not good. People are going, why would you do that? Yeah, I hear you. I know some people have asked me, but I don't want to do it just because people have asked me. I want to do it because I want to do it. And then it, if I feel invested into it, then the story is invested in it. And maybe something will come up in my life where I need to write and to finish the fourth Leo book. And I'll do that. But at the moment, I don't think so. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Because I'm. I, here's the thing about me. I I love real life. And this is real life, right? So if there are three Leo books, I'm going to celebrate those three books and I cannot wait to, and all I can say is book three better not end like book two, because I will be knocking on your door because that one, and I'm so thankful I had owned all three books right at the same time. So I could immediately go into book three after the, how book two ended. Thank God, because that would have made me crazy to have to wait. But uh, no, I totally understand what you're saying, and and uh, and I'm just going to love and appreciate the three Leo books that I have. Uh, but are you working on anything? I know you did that series about the German camp, and I'm really interested. I probably will be getting that one next. But are you working on anything in particular right now that you can talk about? I have one manuscript done, and I'm not, I'm going to wait a bit before I try selling it to people. Um, it is sort of one of those weird crime ones, but it's different. It's a standalone, I guess you call it. I have a couple of ideas percolating in my head about something, and I will uh, see where those go. I mean, I I never really know where I'm going until I actually sit down and say, okay, now I have to write this. So, And COVID has really hit me hard. I haven't done a lot of writing because of that. It's been a weird time for me and for a lot of people, so, but I'll get back into it. I think I'll probably get back into doing some writing and seeing where it goes. I have an interesting idea that just popped in my head based on my part-time job, but I'm not going to tell you what that is. Okay. Um, which might might be one of, it might be 
along the same lines of Red Chesterfield, quirky and weird, but not the same sort of style. Well, yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> well, I, Shauna and I really look forward to it because we both loved the Red Chesterfield. We cannot wait to have our discussion about it that we'll post um, on our podcast in a couple of weeks. So thank you, Wayne, so much for taking all this time and chatting with us. I just, you know, you're one of my favorites. I'm going to be following it, following what you do next. And I will definitely be a big fan and keep promoting your books because I just think you are fabulous. And so there's my and there's my end gush for the day. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that just, you know, that may inspire me to go like, oh, I gotta go impress Rebecca and go write the next book. <laughs> so that does happen. You get, you get, you know, you're sitting there going like, oh, I can't write. And you bang your head against the wall. And then someone says, oh, I love your characters. They're great. And, you, and someone gushes for you like this. And you go like, oh, I better. Great. No, I'm inspired. It, that, I, that's, I'm not joking either. That, that, that's, when you say something like that to a writer, that really helps them go like, I'm doing this for a reason. Wow. Not for the big bucks, but because other people like me. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, they want, and they want me to read what I'm doing next. So thank you. That'll, that will help. I, I'm not joking. That will help me. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like us to continue providing great content like this, subscribe and tell all your friends about Kenneth Reed's American Style. Bye.